he was basically robbed. You know, I felt so terrible for him. He was robbed of a child. He was only 23 when I was born, and he didn't have any other children after me. So I was only child, and I felt really bad that he was robbed of having, you know, a child. Who am I? 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 This is Who Am I Really? A podcast about adoptees that have located and connected with their biological family members. I'm Damon Davis, and on today's show is Megan. She called me from Los Angeles, one of my favorite places. Megan says she put her adopted mother through the ringer emotionally when she was a teenager, and she thinks that's partially because of her anger with her birth mother over her relinquishment. Most adoptees have no clue whom they're setting out to find when searching for biological relatives, but Megan knew precisely who her birth mother was and what she looked like. In reunion, she found her half-brother who knew exactly who Megan's birth father was because they were friends. This is Megan's journey. Megan was born in Pomona, California. She's in her 20s, and her parents are in their 60s, so they were closer in age to being her grandparents than parents. She says she has a loving family, and she had a really great childhood despite feeling different from them. She calls herself a black sheep in the family. I was adopted like a great family. I was a little bit of a black sheep, or I thought I was. I still kind of feel that way. But my childhood was awesome. You know, like my family is so loving. My grandparents were so amazing. I I almost like going back to being a kid, I almost didn't really feel adopted until I got into my teen years. And, you know, every every teenager goes through, you know, the the hard times and the hormones go crazy. And but my childhood was amazing. I wouldn't change anything for the world. It definitely got harder when uh, I hit teenage years, for sure. Mm -hmm. That's when I noticed. Okay, I'm adopted. <laughs> really? Yeah, tell Definitely. me tell me a little bit about that feeling of being a black sheep. It's weird because my younger sister who's almost 16, she's also adopted from another family and um that's actually where I noticed it the most. You know, she's so different than me and she doesn't want to know anything and is not curious and I've always screamed at the rooftops how much I need to know and how much I want to know and my mom always had a really difficult time with me wanting to know and me talking about my birth mother and, um, you know, she never admitted it, but I think she was very threatened by my birth mother, even though obviously I didn't know her. So when I started hitting my teenage years, I started noticing like, okay, I'm so different from everyone in my family. It was, it was an alone feeling. It was very alone. It was very depressing because I just wanted to fit in and be like my family, even though, you know, I I never would be because I'm so different. Megan said one way she's different from her family is her desire to openly explore feelings and emotions, while her family is more quiet about some harder conversations. Of course, getting non-adoptees to understand your feelings, even if they're your family, can be really tough. It was everyone's so quiet. They don't want to talk about anything. And I want to talk about everything. I want to, you know, dive deep and get into the real nitty-gritty, ugly parts of everything, of life and being adopted. And it seemed that it was not, it was almost like they didn't want me to talk about it. And it was kind of like, hush. My dad was a little different. He always kind of, I always felt like he understood. Um, and it was nice to kind of have that confidant there, but it was mostly just 
they don't talk about feelings. And it was hard for me because that's all I wanted to do. And when I did, it was like I was shut down so much. And it was hard for me. So I kept a lot of that inside of me. And it really affected my mental health for a long time. It still does. Mm-hmm. How do you mean affect, it affected so, your mental um, health? In what way? You know, I, I censored myself a lot. And I made myself small. And I made myself as quiet as I can because I didn't want to fight. I didn't want to argue anymore. I didn't. I didn't want to do any of those things, so I just kept myself quiet and small, and I'm not quiet. <laughs> I'm not small. Mm-hmm. Um, for anyone that knows me, I'm very loud. I'm very passionate about everything I talk about, especially being, being an adoptee and adoption. And it was hard kind of having to keep myself so quiet. It ate me up inside completely and really made me kind of act out and rebel. Megan said she invested 12 years in therapy to work through her emotions. I asked her about some of the ways she acted out. Oh, gosh, I snuck out of the house. I smoked cigarettes when I was like 15, and I just did everything my mom said. No, you can't do it. You know, no, you can't go and lose your friends. I'd throw a temper tantrum, and eventually I'd just go, you know, go anyway. Um, just anything she told me, Megan, you cannot do it. I said, yes, I can, and I did it. Wow. Um, <laughs> I, school was awful for me. I was very bad in school. I mean, I have a learning disability as well, which made it much more difficult. It was hard. It was really hard growing up and um, realizing that a lot of my issues were stemmed from my abandonment and how I felt inside. I felt, I didn't feel worthy of love because I just felt, you know, if my birth mother couldn't love me and didn't want me, then why would anyone else? And I really pushed everyone away, and especially my mom and my parents. Mm-hmm. And I just, did anything, anything I could to piss them off and make it difficult for them. You know, I'm the reason my mother has gray hair. <laughs> was there a while there where your rebellion was unconscious and then as you started to really begin to identify with your own adoption that it became more conscious or vice versa? Do you know what I mean? Um, I don't think it was ever really conscious. I kind of think... Well, I guess it was, because as I got older, I realized, probably about 17 is when I really calmed down. I think I realized that I was so mean and angry and just acted out against mainly my mother. It was really mostly my mother. It wasn't my father, because I was so angry at my birth mother, and I can't, I know, I couldn't take it out on her, so I took it out on the closest person I could, which was my mother. Mm. So, um, I think in a way it was conscious, but a lot of it, I think, I didn't really, I just wanted to be bad because that got me attention. Yeah. Being good didn't get me attention. Being bad got me the most attention. So I think that's why I really just pushed everyone's limits. I wondered about Megan's sister, also an adoptee, who is seven years her junior. She said her younger sister is an angel compared to her at that same age. Her sister's a great kid. She actually listens to their mother and gets straight A's in school. A lot of times I've heard that, you know, two adopted siblings are polar opposites. And with me, it can be more true. She's very quiet about her feelings. She doesn't really talk about it a lot. She doesn't talk about her adoption. It doesn't seem to affect her the same way it did me. It's so different in how she is now than when I was her age. Wow. That's fascinating. And I think mostly it it could Mm -hmm. be because I don't know. Part of me thinks she saw so much of it that she doesn't act like me, so she doesn't end up 
the way that my, me and my mom were, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely those folks out there who see the example of what they don't want to be, and they're like, yeah. and they, they uh, guide their life by that influence. So I could see that being true. Yeah, definitely. Megan admits she's put her adopted mother through the ringer in her teenage years. So I wanted to know what catalyzed her desire to search for her natural relatives. She said she's always wanted to search, and she always searched a little bit here and there. When she was 17, her grandmother passed away, and simultaneously, her anger over her adoption dissipated. A few months after her grandmother's death, Megan was working at a kiosk in the mall. And this woman comes up, and she buys something, and I run her credit card, and the receipt comes out. And the name on her receipt is the same exact name as my birth mother, even the middle initial. And I look at her, and she's not my birth mother because I always had a picture of her. But for some reason, I was so floored. I was like, oh, my God, like, that's so weird. What are the odds of, you know, this woman having the same exact first, middle, and last name as my birth mother? So I started thinking, and I contacted a couple of, like, private investigators. And it was, like, hundreds of dollars. And it was stupid. And then I just realized, like, okay, like, I don't want to leave this world not knowing. Like, I need to know. I couldn't, it didn't sit well with me being 80 years old and regretting not looking. Megan started searching on her own. In a Facebook group, another woman shared her search and reunion experience with Megan. She said it was the best thing I ever did in my life. You know, it's not fun. It, it can be really sad, but it's also really healing. And I was like, okay, you know what? I need that. I need healing. Megan said she was 19 when she made that decision and her adopted mom was on board. But she also said something really interesting. I wonder if you caught it too. She said she knew her birth mother's full name and she always had a picture of her. Before we went any further, I really wanted to know more about how she had identifying information about the woman. Well, when I was younger, probably 10, maybe a little younger, my mom pulled out a picture of me as a baby. I was probably in the picture, I think about four months old, three, three or four months old. And there was a woman holding me, and she was like, this is your birth mother. And I, you know, asked her, how did you get this? And I guess the social worker, when they were going through my adoption, the social worker slipped the photo in my file, and she said, don't tell anyone I did this. I'm not supposed to do this. So she secretly put that picture in my file for me to have later in life, which I'm so grateful for because it really helped me wow. a lot. That's amazing. <laughs> how did yeah. that help you to have her picture? It was nice to at least growing up, I could look at one face that looked like me because I looked so much like my birth mother and I didn't realize it so much until I was in reunion and I saw other people that looked like me and looked like her. Mm-hmm. But it was nice to see, you know, her smiling and holding me, even though obviously that was the day she actually signed her rights to me away, which was obviously a very sad day. But, you know, she looked, you know, semi-happy. Yeah, and, it's a you know, bittersweet I got to have picture. That picture of her. Wow. Yeah, and I got to I got to show people like, oh, you know, this is her, and they'd say, oh my gosh, you look just like her. So that was really comforting to have. Yeah, I can imagine. That's yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, and I I, I wonder yeah, it's too. Very nice about a social worker to do that. Yeah, that's that. Some people out there, they just have a big heart, and they know sort of the right thing to do. Yeah, but I can't help but wonder Definitely. if having actually seen her and have an identity associated with the person that put you placed you in adoption. I wonder if that also sort of charged up your own animosity toward her 
You know, because I never had a picture so. of my own mother. So yeah. this was just a person out there. And you can't, it's impossible to associate any old face with yourself. But you actually have a face. And you can then identify the person with whom you're irritated and angered and frustrated and, you know, just sort of in disbelief about. But I didn't have that. So I wonder if, if having yeah. that picture was twofold, both a joyous thing to be able to see your face on someone else. And also like, I can point to you and say who I'm mad at. Yeah, I think I, definitely, but you just hit a spot on. I think that had a big, uh, big role in me being a little more angry. I would say, um, cause I could see her. I knew what she looked like. You know, if I went out in public, I could find her and you know, like, Oh my gosh, that's you. Uh, which was nice. But at the same time, you know, I almost didn't want that because I was so angry. It was so, so angry and so lost. So I think it definitely fueled the animosity towards her. Megan acknowledged that having a picture of her birth mother, Jennifer, probably ignited her search for the simple fact that as she scanned any crowd, she kind of knew who she was looking for. So she was searching whether she knew it or not. Those of us who never had a picture of our birth relatives are sometimes navigating our lives scanning faces, trying to pull pieces from each one in an impossible puzzle game that only we know we're playing. Megan told me that her Facebook acquaintance, the woman who shared her search story, introduced her to the Facebook group Search Squad. But back when she joined the group, there weren't as many members as there are now. She posted every bit of information she had for the group to review. Searchers in the group spent hours with Megan searching online. After five hours of investigative work, she had a list of phone numbers for a half-brother she always knew she had. I always knew I had a half-brother and a half-sister. Mm. But that's what she told the social workers. She said, I have two other children, and they're older. So I start calling this list of phone numbers. And every single one is disconnected. I'm like getting more and more discouraged. I'm like, okay, whatever. So I keep calling and calling. I get to the last number, and I say to myself, if this number is disconnected, this is a sign. I'm going to stop. I'm not going to do anything else. And if it works, then it's going to be. And I call the number, and lo and behold, my brother answers. Oh, my god! And, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Oh, yeah. This was, this was all in a span of five hours where I really started my search, like, in depth. Five hours later, 9 p.m. at night, I finally made that connection. So it was pretty, pretty crazy. That's intense, man. How did you pretty feel? Crazy. I honestly, I don't remember any of the conversation, but at the time I was kind of scared. I was excited. Um, he had no idea I existed at all. I almost gave him, poor man, a heart attack. Um, <laughs> but I, I, it sounded, he definitely thought I was a telemarketer because, you know, when I called, I said, you know, I'm looking for Jennifer Richards. You know, he, he was like, oh, she's deceased, which I kind of already had a feeling um, given her, you know, her background. Um, she did a lot of drugs. She had a really hard life. She was a little older. She was 41 when she had me, mm. um, which is older for a woman to have a child. And mm -hmm. so I just kept telling him, I was like, look, I have, I have pictures. I have ad an address for her. I have a phone number for her. I have all these things. And um, please just let me email you this picture. And I was begging him and begging him. And he finally said, okay, fine. Like, send me the picture, poor right. guy. And I gave him... Uh, he gave me his email and I sent it to him and he said, okay, I'll call you back in 30 minutes. The longest 30 minutes of my life. 
Oh my God. I was just pacing <laughs> up and down my whole house. And he finally calls me back and says, yeah, that's her. And anything after that he told me, I do not remember. I blacked out. I have no clue what he said to me. Yeah. I, I felt, I felt really bad for him too, because you know, I gave him, you know, a life shock. He has a kid sister he never knew about. And, um, the whole family didn't know anything about me. So I pretty much rocked the boat. The next day, Megan's brother called again to put her in touch with her biological father. He and her birth mother had been together until her passing in 2012. Before calling him, she called her adopted mother to share the news that she had her brother's phone number. Her mother suggested that she wait to call him, go home, and discuss things with her. She hung up the phone and thought, No way, I'm not waiting for this. I'm not waiting to call this man. I'm going to call him now. So I called him. And we talked a little bit and just kind of getting to know each other. Like, what kind of food do you like? What kind of, what's your favorite color? You know, kind of like mm -hmm. speed dating almost. Just <laughs> getting to know someone on the phone. And it was, it was really nice. And we talked for a good 30 minutes. And from there, kind of took a breath and, you know, wanted to know more. I wanted to know, like, how, I wanted to know everything. Yeah. Poor so, man, I probably annoyed, annoyed the heck out of him. As Megan was telling her story. I was struck by the fact that her half-brother was immediately in contact with her birth father. I was pretty sure she said he was her half-brother, so I wanted to ask for clarity on whether they had the same father. Are you oh, Damon, do I have a juicy story for you today? <laughs> oh, boy. Okay, so my half-brother is 45. He'll be 46 next week. My biological father is also 45. <gasps> They were best friends in high school. And when they graduated high school, my biological father decided to start dating my brother's mother, a.k.a. my mother. So he started dating his best friend's mother, who was 20 or 17 years his senior. Oh, my God. Are you serious? Yeah. Square. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So no one was really happy about them being together. You know, my, my brother was like, this is weird and awkward and they're dating my mom and it was weird they started dating right after they graduated high school he was like 20 years old and obviously no one was happy my brother wasn't happy and I think of that unhappiness really fueled my birth mother to keep me a secret mm -hmm. which in a way I appreciate now thinking about it because if she hadn't I probably wouldn't have been adopted how do you mean um I, I feel like if my birth mother told my birth father, hey, I'm pregnant, he would have been like, no, 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 like, we're going to keep her, like, this could work, mm -hmm. or, you know, his parents, my biological grandparents could raise me, or even my brother has said to me, you know, I would have raised you. You know, as old as she was, she wasn't ready for another child. Mm -hmm. She wasn't speaking to both of her children the time I was born, and it was really just bad relationship between them. There was a lot of bad blood. And even though, you know, they obviously loved each other still. And, you know, my brother still loved her and was so angry with her. But, you know, they just had a bad relationship. It wasn't a healthy place for my brother to be. So he kind of distanced himself from my birth mother for a long time. She never told anyone. And I think it was a good thing. My gosh, that I totally didn't expect you to say that at all. Wow. I know, right? <laughs> my mind was exploding when I heard heard about this. I keep saying it to myself over and over again, trying to make it make sense. 
Megan says the situation is weird for her to think about. Her birth father said that Jennifer maintained the secret that she was pregnant, only revealing it when it was too late to change what she had already done. She didn't tell him about me until I was three years old. So I was already adopted and with my family by then, so it was pretty much nothing he could do. And he stayed with her. You know, I don't know how. If someone told me, you know, like, oh, hey, your child is out there and I didn't tell you, I would be so angry. But they right. stayed together. And, you know, they loved each other. And, as you know, as untraditional as their relationship was, I think they genuinely needed each other. You know, they, I think they both had a really rough past with, you know, substance abuse. And that, I'm sure, didn't help either of them being with each other but at the same time I think they both really needed each other and they really did love each other and that does make me happy that she had someone like my birth father with her because he's he's a great man he's a really awesome he's an awesome person they just loved each other it gives Megan comfort knowing her birth parents were best friends who loved one another even though they did drugs together thankfully he's been sober for a long time now but drug addiction, unfortunately, consumed her. So, a little over a month after talking to everyone by phone, she met her birth father. Megan took her parents and her boyfriend to meet him, his sister, and his parents at California Pizza Kitchen. She explains how she was struggling with the guilt over her return to the family, and how a certain small sign made her feel like things were okay. And we all sit down, and it's kind of awkward, and it's weird, and the waitress comes up, and ironically, her name is Jennifer. I'm like, oh, that's, you know, that's funny. Like, maybe a coincidence, but I've kind of taken all these little, these little things as kind of signs. Because I've always worried that, I don't know, I think I took on a lot of her guilt after I found everyone. I was okay. A couple months after, I really had a hard time. I was really depressed. I was crying a lot. And I felt so guilty that I outed her secret. Like, I was her biggest secret, and I felt guilty for doing it because I worried if she would be mad at me for doing it. You know, if she were here, would she say, why would you do this? Why would you come back? And I really struggled with that. I just felt so guilty for doing it because mm -hmm. I didn't want her to be mad at me. I didn't want her to be upset with me. I wanted her to be happy that, you know, I'm finding everyone, and it's good, and it's happy, and it's not bad. But the first thing was great with my birth father, and... It went well, and he brought some pictures, and I cried a little bit, and it was good. I think it was good for him, too, mostly. Mostly him. Because, Why did you say that? You know, I felt, I felt, because, you know, he was basically robbed. You know, I felt so terrible for him. He was robbed of a child. He was only 23 when I was born, and he didn't have any other children after me. So mm -hmm. I'm his only child, and I felt really bad that he was robbed of having, you know, a child. She said the first meeting was great with her birth father. She wanted to build their relationship from that point forward, wanting to make things right by him, acknowledging that he had to live with the knowledge of her existence for 17 years. We speculated that Jennifer's guilt over what she had done probably consumed her, forcing her to reveal the secret baby three years after the adoption was final. Megan said her mother was probably able to conceal her pregnancy because she was overweight most of her life. I wondered how things developed with her paternal grandparents. They had no idea their son fathered a child long ago. It's good. They were, they didn't know. So once I got off, once I called him the first time that day, he got off the phone with me, called his mom and said, I need to come over and tell you guys something. And they went over there 
and he sat them down and said, hey, I had a child 18 years ago that I never told you about, and she just called me. And I think they were a little, um, you know, they're upset, I'm sure. Um, I think it's, it's definitely, I noticed it took them a while to really open up and come around. So I think I, could, I noticed when I met them the first time, they were really quiet, and I think probably still trying to process everything that was going on. And so now they're, they're awesome. They're all amazing. It's really been so good to just have them in my life and get to know them and them get to know me. Yeah. So as hard yeah. as I rock the boat, everyone, everyone's pretty happy. And that's good. A few weeks later, Megan met her half brother. This time she took her parents and her younger sister. They met for lunch at a bar and grill where for the first time she was face to face with someone just like herself. Oh my gosh. That was crazy. I cried a lot. <laughs> um, it was weird. It was, it was finally kind of seeing, because Tim and I look a lot alike, and we are, our personalities are so much alike. And it was so weird to be around someone that was like me and looked like me. It was very foreign, but it was really good. It was like I, I, I always knew him, but I didn't really know him. Mm-hmm. It was like catching up with an old friend almost. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, and he just kept telling me how much I'm like her and how much I look like her and um, it was really good. Yeah, that must have been, been validating so for somebody to be able to totally. look at you and have known her and say, wow, you guys are alike. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. It, it was the most validated I've ever felt in my entire life. Yeah. And with all the sadness and really just hard times, it has been so healing to really just, even just looking at someone and like in person that looks like me um, was just crazy. It was so good. Yeah, I'll the bet The craziest was. was when I met her sister, my aunt. My uh-huh. aunt, Terry, looks just like her. It was like someone put a mirror up in front of me for the first time in my entire life. It was crazy. It was great. I mean, everyone's so, they're so nice and so welcoming. Mm-hmm. And it's nice because I'm so nice and welcoming. So I think we're, we're alike in that sense. It's just, I was welcomed with such open, loving arms. It was, it was just so wonderful. So wonderful. Megan's reunion with her paternal side was really fulfilling, but she can never know Jennifer, and it was affecting her when we spoke. She talked about her inability to overcome her emotions and acquaint herself with her birth mother posthumously. Did you ever ask anybody about your mother's grave, and did you have the strength to go? Or anything? Yeah, they were. Um, they actually cremated her, and she was had her uh, ashes scattered, at a lake out uh, like an hour from me. And I thought about going, but I don't think I can yet. I think one day I probably will, but I'll probably have my brother take me if he's willing, but mm-hmm. I'm a little too, uh, I don't know. I don't think I'm emotionally ready for that one just yet. <laughs> it's been a couple of years, but. Really, what do you think is holding you back? Um, Why does it feel like you can't do it yet? I don't know. Like my, uh, this past Christmas I had um, my, biological father's side of the family over for Christmas dinner and he brought a, a box of some of her stuff. It was like a scarf she made, a blanket she made, and one of her um, one of her sweaters that she wore all the time. And it was weird because when I opened the box and I touched these items and I was touching her sweater, I got this immediate like panic feeling. Like I can't touch this anymore. I don't I can't I can't look at it. Like I shouldn't be touching this. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the box has been sitting in my living room for over a month and I still can't bring myself to open it and look at it. 
I kind of almost feel like, you know, I didn't really know her. Like I shouldn't have these, have these things. And it just felt so weird to hold something that she wore and held something that she, you know, she touched. And I almost felt like I, I, I don't know. It was weird. Like I shouldn't. Mm-hmm. So after that, I kind of, um, I don't know what's holding me back. It's very strange. It's a strange, strange panic feeling. I think maybe getting a little too personal almost because I'll never be able to meet her. So I think getting so personal with her things and with her, I think is scaring me a little bit because I've never had to do that. Yeah. I've never met her. And I feel like almost having her things and going to the place where her ashes were scattered is almost like meeting her. And that scares me. Things are good between Megan and her paternal family. She sees her brother sometimes, and she's met her older sister too. But she said her adopted mother had a really hard time with her reunion. Megan suspects that it all happened so fast, her mom didn't have time to absorb everything. The contracted timeline for talking to her brother meant reunion was front and center within hours of Megan even mentioning she was searching. They've just been so nice, and it's been so good. It's been happy. It's been a, it's been a journey. You know, it's, it's quite the journey of a lifetime, and I feel like I've lived longer than I've I've been alive. <laughs> I don't feel 22 years old. I feel very old. Yeah, I can imagine. This is a huge thing to have very unfold at such a young age. Yeah. But it's amazing. Yeah. May I ask, how's, oh, your, how's your adopted mom doing with everything? How was she during this process? Well, at first, when I like, told her that night, when I, start, when I went to search squad, I told her, I said, okay, I'm doing it. I'm starting now. Five hours later, I come back in the house because I was outside talking to my brother. And I told her, I said, I found him. I found my brother. And I don't think in her mind, I think she thought it would take me like days or weeks or months. I don't think she thought it would take me hours. Um, So I think she was a little shocked. And a couple of months after, she definitely had a really, really, really hard time with it. We had a couple fights and she was a little more, I think, almost sad. I felt bad almost because... I felt guilty for making her feel sad and, and all of these feelings. She was kind of standoffish to me. And, you know, my, my mother is amazing. I love my mother so much. But her and I are so different in the way we deal with things and the way we, we process our emotions. Because I just wanted to talk to her, and she did not want to talk about it at all. So I told her, I finally told her one day, I said, look, Mike, if you don't want anything to do with this, you, you don't have to. I told her, I said, this has nothing to do with you or dad or my sister or anyone this is all about me and my journey and healing myself because I couldn't I couldn't do it anymore and I think she understood like okay you know after I told her that and I explained it to her it it got a little better Mm -hmm. you know I wasn't doing it to spite her I wasn't doing it to make her you know hurt her feelings or you know make her feel abandoned you know I told her I'm not going to go live with them you know you're my mom you're my mom till the day I die but she had a hard time and then she started she started to come around and she actually is the one that said, Hey, let's have everyone over for dinner. So it's been really good. And my dad has always been so understanding. And Every time I talk to him about something, he just gets it. Even though he's not adopted, he just gets it. And it's been really nice to have my dad there to really understand me and my feelings through everything. So they got along your, your, yeah. your adopted mother and your biological father. They, they got to meet. Yeah, everyone. Everyone's gotten along really, really well. Um, they haven't met too many times because 
I'm sure many other adoptees listening, well, and you will probably understand. I it, It's almost easier to keep families separate than have them together. In a weird way, you kind of live like this double life. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like your true identity and then your identity that you've had to kind of morph into and you're, you know, growing up and living your life. So it's almost easier to keep them separate sometimes because I get so much anxiety when they aren't together, yeah. even though it goes so well. Well, the other thing too is like, yeah. you don't necessarily like, they don't have to be friends that I find that yeah. repeatedly in, in people's stories of their journey to find their biological families that when they are in a position to introduce their biological family to their birth family, more often than not, it's almost like I need to check this box. Like, I just want to see what will happen. I want them to, like, if they're going to give one another a chance to say something meaningful and special, that would be great. But, like, they don't have to be best friends. You know what I mean? Yeah, Um, totally. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's one of those marvelous things that if you can see it happen and make it happen and witness it and and survive it, I think a lot of people feel like, yes, I got it. it it's done. If they want to talk, fine. But if they don't need to talk to each other ever again, that's also okay. And there's a lot of gradation in how people exactly, feel yeah. about whether they want to, you know, facilitate a relationship between the parents or let them, you know, go back to their separate lives. Yeah. And I, I really tried to make that so clear to my family. I said, you know, none of you have to be a part of it. This is about me and only me. You know, if you want to be in it, awesome. If you don't, that's totally okay. I'm not going to hate you. I totally get it. I think a lot of the time adoptees kind of take on a lot of people's feelings. Like, you know, they don't, they take on a lot of people's guilt. They take on, you know, they don't want to disappoint their parents. They don't want to do this. So they have to really play almost a moderator between um, in their life, and that's that's sometimes, but I guess that's just the way it goes. It is what it is. I wanted to touch on one final thing that I think is really important. Megan said she was in therapy for 12 years. I wondered how Megan was doing at the time of our conversation. You know, you said you had been through therapy and you had tortured your mother, and ultimately you needed healing. Do you feel like you've gotten it? Definitely. I don't think I'm totally there yet because there are times where I break down and ugly cry, but <laughs> um, <laughs> I think I think I'm getting there, yeah. which is really good. Yeah, it's it's been really it's been more good than bad. That's excellent. I'm glad. I'm and really I definitely glad don't that. regret doing it. Part of that healing actually is from um, a Facebook group, Adoptees Only, and all of the people that are in it. And I'm an admin, and all of those admins in that group are seriously the most amazing people I've ever met. It's just, it's an amazing place. It really is. It's, it's really helped in my journey of healing and having other people that get you yeah. just helps so much. You know? yeah. there's it's some, awesome. There's something really unifying and comforting about someone who can understand one of your deepest feelings and some of your deepest emotions yeah. from a perspective of empathy. That's a hard thing for people to get if they haven't been through it. And I think, you know, the online adoptee groups are incredibly important for people to be able to sort of openly express and emote and get support, which I think is, is incredibly important. Not a lot of people that will actively go out and seek to go to therapy, but when you can just go online from the comfort of your living room and talk to what, you know, I've heard people say are crib mates, 
you know, lots of people who understand your perspective, that is incredibly healing for, for yeah. a lot of folks. Definitely. And even though, you know, we all have different experiences, we all connect on the same level. And even though we're all strangers and we live in different parts of the country, they're my family. They're part of my family. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I, it's been so great. And thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I'm really excited. It's my pleasure. I'm really glad that you had the time to share your story today. It's it was Definitely. fascinating to hear you talk a little bit about just how much you tortured your mother, but I'm so glad you feel like you got the healing that you did. Oh, my poor mother. I'm still apologizing for it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure oh, she appreciates it. Thank you, Megan. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Take care. All the best to you. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hey, it's me. I'm really glad that Megan got counseling for her emotional state. It can be really hard to deal with life in general, and being an adoptee can be especially hard because in some cases, you're living two lives, whether you want to or not. There's the life you've lived in your adopted family, and the one you're inextricably linked to through your DNA and your heritage. Quite a while after our interview, Megan emailed me to say that after three months, she finally opened the box with her mother's belongings inside and put those items in her own closet. But she said she still hasn't been to the place where her mother's ashes are scattered. In that email, she wrote, I think I will keep the image in my head that she is still out there somewhere, even if it's not true. I'm Damon Davis, and I hope you'll find something in Megan's journey that inspires you, validates your feelings about wanting to search, or motivates you to have the strength along your journey to learn Who am I, really? If you would like to share your adoption journey and your attempt to connect with your biological family on the next season of the show, please visit whoamireallypodcast.com slash share. You can find the show at facebook.com slash waireally or follow me on Twitter at waireally. And please, if you like the show, you can subscribe to Who Am I Really on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Tune in radio or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, take a moment to share a rating or leave a comment. Those ratings can help others find the podcast too.